Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. On Good Authority has had over a million downloads, regularly appears on the top 100 career podcast list, and has been named one of the best publishing podcasts by LA Weekly and Kindlepreneur. Please welcome OG Authority host, New York Times bestselling author, Anna David. There are people who launch books, end up just having a nice thing to put on their shelves. Then there are people who launch books that transform their careers and their lives. As a former member of the first group, I strongly urge you to be part of the second. In this show, I talk to entrepreneurs and authors about how to intentionally launch the book that will serve as the best business card and marketing tool you've ever had. Get ready for takeoff. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is has nothing clever to say today about how to build uh how to not waste your time on a book that no one's going to read. Yeah, let's talk not there's enough out there about how to write a book, how to publish a book, uh all that stuff. What we talk about here is how to uh strategically publish the book that will help build your business and make you an authority. Release of an old episode, an amazing episode. It's with Jennifer K. Armstrong. She's the New York Times bestselling author of Seinfeldia, How the Show About Nothing Changed Everything. But she's written many other books about uh, t- television, uh, books about uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show, Sex in the City. Uh, she has she was on staff at Entertainment Weekly. That's what she was doing when I met her. And she's 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 brilliant and funny. And what's amazing about this episode is she talked about what it's like when you are a quote, regular writer to your publisher versus when you are a New York Times bestselling author to your publisher and how how differently you're treated. Um, so I, I love this one. Um, as does my cat Bernie, who's running towards the mic. By the way, if you like this episode, uh, Jennifer, is quoted in my book on good authority, uh, seven steps to prepare, promote, and profit from a how-to book that makes you the go-to expert. I also think you'd love my book to business course, and you can get both by going to ongoodauthoritypod.com. But enough about all that. Now I give you Jennifer K. Armstrong. I'm so excited that we're doing this. Yes. Going. I love talking about this stuff. So I know, and we're all warmed up because exactly. we spent an hour doing it before. But okay, you were just saying you're okay. So you are the author of four books that have come out quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, I've been at about a about you know a year or two between books each time. So it's been you know like I finish a book, it comes out, I start a new one. But yeah, I guess also it's every year that passes, time goes faster. So it yes. feels like when we used to hang out in New York, that was just like a couple years ago. And because yeah. you didn't have any books out at that point. Right. That's, it's, it is crazy. It's really crazy. And then like, you know, I was lucky enough. I had a 
you know, I feel like we all get sort of like luck, especially on the first one, like something weird happens and you get the first one. And then it kind of became like when I decided I quit my job at Entertainment Weekly after my first book and then wanted to do this full time. And if you want to do it full time, you have to keep pumping them out or you have to figure out other streams of income. You know, those are your two options. So that's what I've been doing since I quit my job, uh, which I believe was in 2011. Yes. I, okay. And I left New York on, in 2010. So yes, when I knew you, you were full-time staff at Entertainment Uh Weekly. We of course had a reading series. We sure did. (laughs) What was it? Readings and rubdowns. Yes. Not what you think, but more like we hired a masseuse guy. That was cute of us. I actually thought that was a really cute idea. It was really cute. Um, So, okay. And so you were able to get this first book deal, which you say as a result of the fact that you had been you know, writing for Entertainment Weekly. So not just in terms of context, but in terms of regular writing experience, in terms of credibility, in terms of everything. Yeah, exactly. So actually my very first book deal um, was with Grand Central Publishing. And um, this was a I, kind of a work for hire. It's like, so the publisher wanted a book about the 1950s Mickey Mouse Club and was looking for someone to write it. And so through a variety of circumstances, an agent I had been talking to, but had not signed with yet, had heard about this. Right. And she came to me and said, would you be interested in doing this? And I was like, I actually write quite a bit about Disney kids. Like I was writing about Miley Cyrus at all at the time. And so I was like, so I could get interested in this. You know, um, I'm not old enough to have watched the original 1950s Mickey Mouse Club. Let's make that clear. But I really wanted to be an author. It was my lifelong dream. And I thought like, I will Google this and I will figure out, you know, how to do it. And so I did. That's what I did. And so I was really lucky. I was at, you know, this major publisher with my first book deal um, you know, interviewing old Mouseketeers. And it was, it was a fun, it was a fun experience. And it was such a learning curve because I truly, no one really knows how to write a book. The first time they do it, you sign on to do it. And then you're like, I will figure this out now. And so I kind of learned to write a book when I was doing that. Well, it's interesting because if you go fiction, you have to sell a completed book. So, um, so my first book was, was a novel and right. I, had to do that learning her figuring it out without any guidance but um but so okay so the focus on this show is now about launches and we mm-hmm. just were able to talk about sort of successful launches and not successful launches so how much of the learning curve on this first book was about that you had you know they talk in publishing about how you can get orphaned if your publisher moves to another publishing house you were quite literally orphaned on that first book. I was. And it's important for you to know that this idea was actually the publishers. Um, You know, he was a very nice older man who watched the 1950s Mickey Mouse Club and said in a meeting once, like, gosh, I'd really love, you know, a book about that. I love, and he was so excited. I met him once and so excited about this. And he, unfortunately, before the book was published, he died. And so we went from a situation where my editor was telling me about how the sales staff was getting Mouseketeer ears to wear and like they're super excited about it to honestly, from my end, radio silence. I didn't actually know he died. Um, So 
it just seemed really quiet. And I had had friends who had published books. So I was a little suspicious, but also not great at, at advocating for myself yet. And like, who am I? I got this deal because someone had an idea. Right. It was really hard to assert myself, you know? And so, and I also, it's, it's important to know, I had a pretty young editor and a pretty young agent at the time. Right. I was one of my agent's first clients. Right. And so no one stepped in at any point to say like, what's going on? What's happening? And I really panicked about two months before. And my friend, Jamie Attenberg, the novelist, yeah. um, was already out there doing her thing. And she's so good at this. And um, I asked her, you know, about this. And she was like, oh, well, you're way too late to get into book, you know, a bookstore for your launch event. But I kind of put one together myself at Lolita Bar back in the day in New York oh, City. Oh, yes. Because yeah, that's would, where we did everything. It, because it was because they liked authors. They would let us have stuff there for free. Yeah. So I actually had a really nice party for myself, and I'm pleased with that. But to be honest, it was way too late to really do anything else. And I didn't know what else to do, to be honest. So that was kind of it. That was the heights of why, because we still like you a history of the Mickey mouse club, because I had a great launch party because I had been to a million book events. So everyone paid me back by coming to mine. Right. It was really fun and probably sold more books that night than any other time I will say. And this is actually a teachable moment. The only other big moment I had for this book was when I went back home to the suburbs of Chicago a few months after it came out and my father was so excited about this book because he watched the Mickey Mouse Club. Also, because I wrote it, but yeah. you know, um, he's really, really proud dad, and he was really good at being a proud dad. And he was a member. He's very active with veterans organizations, so he had he was very big at his local VFW post. And we basically had an impromptu book party at the VFW. I came with books. We sold a bunch of them. I signed them. That was the other big moment for this book. And what that tells you is this was the target audience. Yes. The right age group. And they were ecstatic about, you know, they're asking me like, did you talk to this person? Did you talk to Tommy? Did you talk to that person? I love Darlene. Um, and they were excited. And it was the only, I really didn't know how to find this audience because they were not my age. Yeah. And so I struggled and tried a little bit online and I tried to join some you know, boomer websites and stuff like that and tried to push it there. But being out on my own and not having experience and then not having an, even an agent who could tell me what to do soon after my agent actually stopped agenting. Yes. Um, she was laid off from her firm and I was passed on to her boss who did not really care about me. Right. And so I got a new agent and it wasn't until then and that I understood, you know, the next time around what should happen because she was on my side advocating me for me the whole time. Yet, as we were discussing earlier this morning, a lot of times even having an active agent and a very experienced publisher, you were still left to figure out a launch on your own. Yes. And Absolutely. I would say that in general, book parties do not sell books. Oh, They're no. super fun. <laughs> if, if you, you know, don't get too stressed out about the fact that no one's buying your book. No. And the problem with book parties is that your friends show up and that's so nice. And then all you're like, are you going to buy a book? Are you going to go buy a book? I know, right? You and notice everyone who doesn't buy a book and everyone who does. 
and they showed up. Why should, you know, that, that should be enough. And yet it, it, in that circumstance, it's not. So what does sell books? Yeah, that's a really good point that I, so from that experience, what I really took away from then on and to this day is that I never assume I, my publisher is going to do anything. I always say, and this is not an insult to even my past or current publishers, but it's just best to assume this way because then you're pleasantly surprised if other stuff happens. I always say, just like pretend that they are your printing and mailing service. Yes. And you assume you're going to do everything else. And so I've, I've had publishers do other things for me, but, um, you know, it, it, from then on, I did my own stuff and just barreled ahead and actually got in trouble a few times where they were like, Hey, you need to tell me if you're going to do this stuff. But, um, you know, I think, I mean, it's hard to know what sells books is the first part, you know, um, it's a complete mystery and you think something's going to sell and it doesn't, you don't think something's going to sell and it does. I did eventually have a bestseller called Seinfeldia that came out in 2016. And, um, I kind of had a feeling about it, but I also didn't want to jinx it because I just knew from doing a year plus of research on Seinfeld, how Seinfeld people are. (laughs) So meaning the fans or the people involved in it, the fans. And so that to me, um, is something that you talk about, which is having an audience that you are serving and knowing, and also P.S. that that will buy books. Um, And that's hard to totally know. So you may be able to tell from this conversation that I write books about TV history. And since that Mickey Mouse Club experience, the one thing I got from it that was great was that um, I thought like, oh, what if I did this on a a topic that I cared about? What if it was like a a show I was excited about and I knew the audience, right? So that was the big lesson is I didn't know, I truly didn't know where to find those people except at my dad's VFW. Right. So next time I did a book about the Mary Tyler Moore show, still to this day in some ways my favorite book just because it was like a passion project and I sold it on proposal to Simon and Schuster when with my new agent and it was like the dawning of a new day and I still love talking about it. Um, people still talk to me about this book and I at least knew a little bit better, you know, where to find the TV nerds for this particular kind of right. show. And that book did okay. You know, it did fine. Um, it wasn't bestseller or anything, but it got really nice reviews. It was reviewed in the New York times. It felt like a big step up right. from the previous one. And then Seinfeldia was next. And that was like, okay, take what worked with the Mary Tyler Moore show now and try to find a show that people are super passionate about. There's a large contingent. They're still interested in it. And they're so into it that they will buy a book and come to events and want to talk to it, talk about it and buy it for their friends. Right. So that was kind of the thinking behind that one. And that was a it was really a group effort with my publisher. Like we talked about a number of shows and we felt like this was where there would be a sweet spot. It's also like a reading audience. Like they're old enough. I don't know. It was just a, it's a hunch, but we thought it was a reading audience and it turned out to be true. And so I did a lot of work, um, to get ready for this one. I, um, you know, planned events. I planned, you know, pitching stories to, 
outlets that I could write for in addition to, you know, my publicist pitching me to talk about Seinfeld. And um, the other thing I did that's sort of interesting is that I did the Jewish Book Council. Do you know about this? No. Okay. I will. I'm so excited. <laughs> I love telling people about it. So when I started writing this book, I'm not Jewish, but um, my longtime partner is Jewish. So we celebrate Jewish holidays. I don't know why I'm telling you that, but <laughs> relevant, relevant, it, a little relevant. Legit- but, you, I don't, and I'm hundred percent Jewish. So go on. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so people start kind of like doing this thing where it's like, I'm at events and someone will go like, Oh, you're writing a book about Seinfeld. Do you know about the Jewish book council? It was like this weird secret thing. And I was like, no. So turns out this is an organization where you apply, it is something like $500. And the other big thing is you have to get them some absurd number of copies of the book, like 900 or something. The reason being that what it is, is an, it's a network of everybody and the, all these people in the, around the country who plan events at Jewish centers. So JCCs and synagogues. Here is a big reading audience, friends. This, what, what you're really seeing is the uh, truly the tradition of scholarliness and reading in the Jewish community at work because they still value this so much that they have this JBC. And you, it's a very funny process. You go before, they all come to New York City one day in the spring and you, in a big synagogue downtown, and you go up and you have a hard two minutes to oh essentially pitch God. your book and yourself to them. Um, and they, I'm not kidding. They hold up cards that say like 30 seconds left, 15 right. seconds, because they just have like, I can't remember how many, but there's probably something like 50 to a hundred, um, authors to get through. And then at the end, there's like an awkward cocktail thing. And then, um, for the next year you are officially on and at any time they can invite you to come to their place and give a talk. And the, the key here is they pay for travel. So this is a way to get a book tour in a time when no one pays for book tours. And to get people to show up. And to get people to show up. Most of the places, I will tell you not all, most of the places I went to, part of the key here was, in fact, because I don't have a, I don't have people in Cincinnati. Right. I don't, I did a, lot, a strange amount of Ohio with this one. It was, it was odd. But um, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus. Um, but yeah, so... And you, you also, it's important for you to know that you can say no. I did, it's very hard to say no when you're an author. So I did not say no very much, but you can. So it's not like an obligation, but the fact is that if they invite you, they will pay for a hotel and travel. So, um, and their rule is, this is another key. You can come actually and book another event in their town as long as it's after theirs. Theirs has to be the first one. So you could stay an extra day, pay for it yourself in the hotel and go somewhere else if you wanted. Um, but they did also get people to show up. I, some of the, I had some really lovely ones, you know, I think it was Columbus, maybe I can't remember where I feel bad about that, but they had a wonderful event for me. I still have a visual of it. It was like packed on a Thursday night and they had, you know, a couple, a lot of the places did this actually, they had Seinfeld themed foods. Um, Tons of people would come. They would have the book. They also obviously arranged all the book selling and they would always have the books for sale is the other part of this. Yeah. So, you know, I probably sold 25 
30 books at that thing, which is huge. You know that, that like to sell, to have a line of people waiting. Absolutely. To, you know. Um, and then another one I did in Louisville, I loved, they rented out a special, they rented out a restaurant and again, they had Seinfeld themed cocktails and food. They had invited the guy who did the music for Seinfeld because he happened to live there. And we did a joint event where he played the piano and like talked about theme music. And I talked about Seinfeld and it was a classy event. People like dressed up and came out on Friday night and no, it wasn't Friday night. Um, it was Thursday night again, um, to do this. So, you know, the right, the right venue that has a following and has a tradition of doing this kind of thing can be really key. So can just the Jewish book council, because they get you out across the country and you get to go all of these places for free. I did do one, at least one or two events through them where like, it was the typical, like three people showed up and the only person who bought the book was like the guy who organized it. Yeah. It's going to happen. But like, I at least got, at least it was paid for. And so that really helped. And then I, I always send myself on a quote book tour, which is just usually to Chicago where I'm from and LA where I have a huge audience because I write about show business. And so for those feel worth it to me, both just as a celebratory thing and often I'll go out out to LA and do an event like with people from the book. Like here's, you know, I did an event with a couple of Seinfeld writers in LA. That's going to be more of a draw, quite frankly, than just me. So that's kind of been my strategy for the event portion of things. How many books would you estimate that sold? Could you estimate? I couldn't. Um, You said you have to give them 900 books. Oh, the right. 900 books is for the people, the like members oh, is what I call them. Like God. the and people a, who book you. It's an audition. It's an audition. It? And so you could be out 900 books. Oh yeah. So, I mean, that part is tough if you are not traditionally published yeah. because they like my publisher, the minute I said to them, you know, I'm doing Jewish book council. They're like, okay, cool. And then I just said, I have to get them the, these books by this date. Here's the address. And oh. They for me. oh, right. Okay. You so, didn't pay um, yourself. Yeah. But then once, once you're in it, it's really, I really wish I knew how many it sold. Cause it, I keep, it's like hard to decide whether to do it again, um, because of that. But, um, I did a lot, a lot, a lot of events, probably too many as my partner will attest. Um, I nearly killed myself the year of Seinfeld because as you know how this is, it's like, if you're an author and you've been doing this for a while, you feel like you have to strike while the iron is hot. And it was felt very difficult to turn down the attention. And it went on for a year or two. That's um, it was really crazy. And it's, it's almost only in retrospect that I can be like, Oh my God, that was really crazy. I don't know how people who really sell a lot of books must feel because this was nice. And I was on the bestseller list for many weeks. Um, but it was exhausting and people should know that. And I like basically almost wrecked my life and myself doing it. So be careful, be careful with that part. So let me ask the crass question of how financially did that pay off? Did that pay? Did you get a huge deal the next time around? Did no, it, I did not. Um, I got a little bump, but I'm trying to remember how it's so funny. You have to figure out how all the timing worked. So a couple things. 
first of all, Seinfeldia was an instant bestseller. So what's funny about all of this I just told you is that it was definitely helpful, but it didn't, it wasn't the thing. Yeah. That makes sense. It's like, I did all this, I booked all this Jewish book council stuff months in advance. And then I have a distinct memory of like, I was in the back of a car, you know, being driven to a New Jersey event the Wednesday after it came out. So when reporting happens, when you find out, and I got, that's when I got the call that I was on the list. And what's hilarious about that is I got there and like four people came to that event and no one bought a book and it didn't right. matter. Cause I was right. like, Oh, well, I'm a bestseller. Right. Um, so it's hard to know what works, but I do think the momentum was helped by continuing to do yes. stuff because it kept it out there. And what ha- happened is that it came out in like July, but then we kept up momentum long enough that we got to December and then we got to re- still to this day, get a really big Festivus bump. Oh yeah. Um, real, this is true. I never, honestly, as much as I believe in the power of Seinfeld, I never would have thought that, you know, years, three years later, I'd still be getting a Festivus bump, but people have asked me to do events for Festivus this year. They do Festivus, um, displays at Barnes and Noble and other places. This is what they, they like to put out. There's a couple of things that you really can buy like a Festivus poll. So they'll like put out a couple things and they like to do this. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Ultimately, it's hard to know what worked and what didn't, but I got a little bump on my next advance, but that's because we we re- we signed that deal a week after Seinfeldia came out. So like we knew it was a bestseller, but we didn't know how big it was or how much it was going to continue. So I got a slight bump on the next one, which was Sex and the City and Us. And I will say, I mean, it's, it is the gift that keeps on giving in terms of, um, royalties royalties every, you know, what is that? Every six months I get a royalty check. I try not to check because I like to be surprised and I like to pretend that money isn't real until it happens. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? So that's always nice. And then I, you know, I don't have a ton of ancillaries, but I, this, there's this company that does these, uh, desk calendars with like little trivia facts. And, um, we've got, I think we're three years running now that we've had, um, they're called sellers. The the company is sellers and they do these dust calendars. So I believe we've had three editions. Now we just got the 2020 edition. So, and I get royalties on that and that's fully free money. If that makes sense. Like I did nothing for that. And I get, got a couple thousand dollars just to sign the deal. And then, and that's every time we sign a new deal every year. And then I get, I've actually gotten some royalties in addition to that quote unquote advance. So, you know, it's in that way it's paid off. And also in being able to, I do feel like the New York times bestseller thing. It's like, they can't take that away from you. Right. <laughs> You're always right. that. Right. And I actually in the back of that car, when that happened, um, it was weird, but my first thought was like, Oh, my obituary just got written unless I do something else. Right. So, right. you know, I do think, that helps and going, I actually ended up going to a different publisher for the book that I'm working on now. And I have to think that that helped when pitching a slightly more difficult to sell idea. Right. Right. Now, what's interesting is over the years, traditional media has mattered less and less. And back in the day when my first book came out in 2005, and basically I was told, if you can get on the Today Show and in People Magazine, that 
that same week, guaranteed New York Times bestseller. Um, and I actually do remember uh, hassling you about, can I get an EW? Can I oh, get an sure. EW? Yeah. And you were super nice about like, I, I think you, you're like, I can pass it off. But like, you know, it was, EW was a huge, because that yeah. was a reading audience. Yep. And um, I will say like Party Girl, I got on the Today Show and I got in Cosmo and it wasn't a bestseller. Mm -hmm. So, and over time, it just matters less and less and less. And today, if you don't have the sort of built-in passionate, you know, people who are passionate for your subject, it's, it's influencer stuff. Yep. It would be like Jerry Seinfeld, Instagram posting yep. about it and, and yep. stuff like that. And that yet you hear Instagram influences going away. So what do we think is the thing that will make a launch successful? I think it really is. It's, I mean, it may be more clear for somebody like me with this, these kinds of books, but it really is about targeting the audience. And that's yeah. why publishers have sort of liked these books for me so far too, yeah. right? Um, and so a, another thing that I'm thinking about is, funny thing that happens is there are actually, we've talked about like your publisher ignoring you and stuff. There are kind of levels essentially internally that they don't tell us about. And it's like when I hit, the New York Times list the first week, I felt like I like advanced a level in a video game. Right. right like right. I unlocked this whole new level that I didn't know existed. Like right. on my last book, they'd all been very, very polite and had been like, here is another thing someone has written for you. I am written about you. I am passing it on. And that was like kind of it. Whereas like the minute this happened, they were all like, do you want to have a marketing call and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I thought we already had that meeting. Uh, when it turned out like that was, I don't know what that other meeting was, but I was, I mean, it was, was to like, appease the author. Right. right. So, so like, then they're like, no, but do you want to have a real meeting? Uh, um, essentially. And I was possibly a little overburdened and cranky at the moment. I got a lot of stuff the first week I was like running around. I, I have these stories about how like I hadn't been paid yet and I was almost out of money. And so, you know, I was waiting, like the check was literally in the mail. And there was a point at which in the July heat in New York, I was like walking like tens and twenties of blocks in heels to my interviews because I couldn't afford a taxi. Um, cause I had no money. Like it was ridiculous. And I was like, you all can have a marketing meeting and decide what you're going to do because over here, I can't even afford that. to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like doing so much stuff already. Right. And I was like, Sounds like you should figure out where you're going to, I was a little cranky at the moment. Um, but yeah, like, and I appreciated it actually, because one of the biggest things that came out of that was that um, Seinfeld, I guess, was about to come to Hulu or had already j had just come to Hulu. And so they reached out to Hulu. And this is the kind of thing that like publishers can often do that we can't. Um, I can, I don't just call Hulu headquarters and like, hey, maybe I right. could, I don't know. but. They were able to do it fairly quickly and Hulu sponsored a, um, what do they call it? Satellite tour for me, which is like where you sit in a studio for a day and a bunch of different, you do like, I must've done 30, um, you know, mostly morning, uh, news show interviews in one fell swoop. And they've got like the Hulu Seinfeld backdrop behind me. So that the people know it's on Hulu and I'm talking about the book, everybody's happy. And that's like the kind of expense that publishers won't even do anymore and, and is difficult, you know, is, is a significant expense for an author. So I got hair and makeup 
and studio and somebody else set up this whole thing. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, it's enraging to me to hear that because I never made it to that level, even with my New York Times bestsellerdom. And I knew this secret society. You knew it existed, existed. right? Well, and, and I know an author who I remember telling me, like, his book was a huge hit. And he's like, yeah, they did nothing until it was a huge hit. Right. And it's so enraging because it's like low hanging fruit. Then right. why are they giving like this idea that they, it's so unfair, this idea that they don't give a shit about you yeah. in, in the first week. You know? right. And that is totally not within your control. It has nothing to do with how great your book is. No. And it, it's so unfair. Well, exactly. And you know, it's, it really, it was a little, even in the moment, because I had been, you know, I had been around already. I had been through two books. And so seeing, I guess the good news is it was a progression for me. So like the first one was like crickets. The second one was like polite acknowledgement, right? Um, right? Like here, you have been reviewed in the New York times. It is good. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And then this one was like, oh, now I see. And oh, another interesting thing was they were telling, they started telling me like a week before all of a sudden they were telling me like the pre-order numbers are really good. And I was like, why have they never told me pre-order numbers before? Oh, right. Cause they weren't good. Right. So they right. shut up and that's fine. I guess I don't want to hear bad news. And I certainly don't want to hear your pre-order numbers are not good, but, um, it just was very interesting to see what that there was this other side, like this whole other world. It's like having lived in a house for years and then finding out there's like a secret, beautiful attic that you didn't know about, you know, and that, and it is a little frustrating, right? Like that I get it business wise, but it's also frustrating that you don't get help with success until you get success. It's so unfair. And it's so, because I talked to so many authors who are or potential clients for my mm-hmm. company who, um, bless their hearts, do not understand how hard it is to get a book deal and then do not understand that their prob- publisher, statistically speaking, probably won't do anything for them. Right. And there's these visions of, yeah, if it's good, they'll just buy it. And it's like this statistic that is like three in 10,000 books sell to publishers. And even, you know, I had my heart broken seven, six times with them. So, so, you know, I'm a big believer, as you know, in like, take control of the process, do it yourself, hire someone to do it if you can't do it yourself. And, uh, and, you know, because it's, it's a sort of countdown to heartbreak, but, but not for you. I mean, but you are in the 0.0001%. Right. And it's so, it's so important to remember that too, because, and it's, it's hard to talk about this stuff publicly too, because, um, I feel like I have to start every conversation with the like 10 minute caveat of like groveling about how grateful I am that this happened to me because it's like hard to complain, you know, because you'll get, I've had this happen. I've been on like forums and, you know, private Facebook groups, that kind of thing for, people to share information. People ask for the information. I give it to them and they're like, well, it must be nice to even have a publisher. And I'm like, it is, but it is, it's just important for people to know the heartbreak, as you say, that awaits them on the other side. Like we, it's so funny how you think like, first you think getting the agent is the big thing. Yeah. Right. And then you realize like there's still a bunch of work to do. And then you think getting that first deal is the big thing. And then they ignore you and drop you and say, 
you know, it was like, literally, I got an email at some point about that first book. This is, they didn't actually say it, but essentially it said like, we're going to mulch the rest of the copy. Oh, I got that book. letter. It's the worst. The oh. mulching letter is the worst. And they're like, cause it's the hilarious part about it is that they're telling you mainly to tell you like, if you would like to buy you yes. know, copies at cost, I'm like, I made that thing. And now you're offering me a discount on, on it before you kill it. Like it's just the worst feeling. And so, you know, it, and it, it is ups and downs and it's, expectations is a huge thing I've learned because my next book after Seinfeldia was about sex in the city. And everyone kept saying like, this is going to be the biggest book of all time. It's going to be even bigger. And it did great. It did fine, but it did not exceed Seinfeldia. And so everyone was sad. You right. know what I mean? And so it did, you know, it did better in its first week than the Mary Tyler Moore show book did in its first, you know, three years, but it just didn't, meet the, it didn't exceed the expectations. It didn't keep going up. And so everyone was very sad, including me. It was really, really hard to, um, shake that off because it felt like a failure. And so it, it's a weird, it's a weird thing because what that made me realize is that it did feel surprising because it felt like wouldn't sex in the city people be even more into reading. It was based on a book women buy are supposedly the big book buyers, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't, you can't make thousands of people do something they don't want to do. Which is so annoying. It's very (laughs) annoying because I got lots of press on that, you know, and that's a huge thing people should know. And I swear to God, no matter how many times I say it to people, they don't believe me um, until they experience it themselves. But it's like publicity does not equal sales. Does not, does not. The the things that, uh, whoever writes your forward does not equal sales. Nope. Whoever blurbs your book does not equal nope. sales. How, however many tours you go on really yep. does not, you know, it is catching lightning in a bottle. It really is. It really is. And so you have to, that's why I'm, it's, it's interesting being post Seinfeldia in the sense that I've had a book since then that like didn't do quite as well. So now I get it. You know what I mean? And I'm sure I always say every book finds a new way to kick my ass. So I'm sure (laughs) that my next book will also find a way, but I feel a little each time I learn more. And so then I feel like, okay, I sort of know this other part that I didn't know before. And I understand. And so I understand that I might not always be treated. Like I had one week, by the way, with Sex and the City and Us where they really kind of treated me like a best-selling author and it was great. Right, right, right. <laughs> it was very like, exciting. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it actually, I actually got a little glimpse. Like it wasn't huge, but like they did pay for me to go to Chicago for a book festival and I got like um, a room at the Four Seasons way at yeah. the top. And when I got there, there was like wine and cheese waiting for me. And I was like, ah, oh, this is it. And then it was all over. <laughs> right. Well, I, it goes back to Down With Love that Ewan McGregor uh, yeah movie where you're like, Oh my God, being an author is so glamorous. Yep. It's, it's, and it's important to note that is obviously not a documentary, but also like it was the sixties. So like, I would say things probably were a little closer to that in the sixties. It was a different, yeah. you know, I always look at those, like, I, like I loved Tom Wolf when I was coming up, he was my big idol. And so like they, it was different than this guy's out there in his white suits go it you know like living the high life just like writing a book every few years if he feels like it and he's treated like this huge celebrity and it's just not it's not the way it goes 
except it is for people like Elizabeth Gilbert, for people like J.K. Rowling. Like, it is true for a select few. And that was probably true for a select few then. And those were the ones we saw. Yeah, absolutely. And to be those people, that's a funny thing, too, is like, once I was a bestseller, like that's a word that people can use for me now. There is a gigantic difference among us all, right? Yes. Like you and me are over here. Yeah. And Elizabeth Gilbert and Gillian Flynn are way right. over there. And probably I would say even farther over there is like J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Stephen K. Right? Yeah. Very, very different. Yeah. And it's, I always said the way to have a best selling book is to get people who don't read books to read your book. Uh, so it's people who are at a party and they're going to feel stupid for not having read Eat, Pray, Love. Yep. So that's, that's really the secret. The, you're, you're, if we relied on readers, nobody, <laughs> like people who read books every day, nobody would be a bestseller. I mean, the problem with people who read books is that I'm a person who read, reads books and I purchase a fair number of them, but like, I always have this giant to read pile. Yeah. So it's like very hard to penetrate that. Whereas you're right. Like you want the books that literally every, like moms at a part pool party in Nebraska are talking about. Right. So like, every, like it's reached everywhere. You can't get away from it. It's the kind of thing I remember when we used to have like albums, like CDs, and there were certain albums that you like, you wouldn't even know how you got it. You wouldn't know why you bought it. Why did I have that Shania Twain album? Right. And that's how Eat, Pray, Love was, right? You just sort of blacked out and woke up one day and you had (laughs) Eat, Pray, Love and you're like, I might as well read it. Apparently I bought it. Like that's, that's the like big fat book, you know, bestseller kind of thing. Um, But there's, it's important for people to know there's a big difference between some bestsellers and other bestsellers to get on the list is a relative thing. It just says you sold more books than other people that week, which could right. mean a variety of things. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So this has been amazing. Let us just wrap up. So your top three tips for doing a successful launch, like just to summarize what you mm-hmm. said. Yeah. I would say, um, know that you have a target audience and find them and go to where they are. Uh, think about reading audiences as well, right? So that's something like the Jewish Book Council. And if you or your book is Jewish, you can do the Jewish Book Council. So, you know, I I got in on the book is Jewish on that one. Yeah, yeah. And I think my other one would be kind of a cautionary tale, which would be simply like, you know, volume of noise does not equal sales. So, you know, whether that's lots of events or lots of publicity, do all that stuff, do everything you can to promote it so that you feel good about what you've done, but you can only do so much. And once you've done as much as you physically can, you just have to let it go and hope for the best and realize that you wrote a book and that's amazing and you should celebrate that. And that because it didn't launch well, doesn't mean you shouldn't keep at it either. You should keep, you know, telling people about it because you're passionate about it. And it's your legacy. It's even when they mulch it, yep. it's still there. I've still got a bunch of copies of why, yeah. because I still, we still like you right here and people occasionally still talk to me about it. So, and I learned a lot. So you, you learn with every book and even the bad experiences teach you. So, you know, it, it is a great thing to write a book, but you do want people to find out about it. As long as you can balance those two and tell as many people as you can, 
and feel good about what you've done, that's, that's the best you can do. Well, thank you so, so much. This has been amazing. Where is the best place for people to find you? You can find me at jenniferkarmstrong.com. And from there, you can find all of the other things like social media and my podcasts, um, Pop Literacy and Hashtag Authoring, which is, in fact, about the business of being an author. And you have an upcoming guest, Anna David. He's just That's right. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you so, so, so much. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And now a request from me. If you've ever used any of the tips or techniques you've heard about from the show, please take a few seconds to give the show a rating or review and find out all about how my company, Legacy Launchpad, writes and launches books at www.legacylaunchpadpub.com. See you next week.